Welcome to the Archways Podcast. Archways is recorded on the campus of Johnson C. Smith University and intended to support the goals of the Center for American Cultural and Race, which is housed on the campus of our partner institution, Guangdong Baiyun University in Guangzhou, China. The Center and this podcast are designed to help our Chinese colleagues and friends understand and experience American culture through the lens of race. Here now are your hosts from Johnson C. Smith, Dr. Brian Jones, and Dr. Matthew DeForest. This podcast is one of a two-part series. In 2017, William Bashirs of Arizona State University and Yvette Hall and Jermaine King of Johnson C. Smith University presented a lecture tour entitled Multicultural America at American Cultural Centers at Guangdong Bayun University, Guangzhou University, and Sichuan University. These recordings, which were made by Reginald Page, the American intern for the Guangdong Bayun University Center for American Race and Culture, are from the lectures given at Sichuan University. And uh, this is a, a lecture, or lecture tool, organized by Access, uh, American Culture Center Network. Uh, and uh, we have some guests here. Uh, Professor King, and uh, he will deliver a lecture uh, later. And uh, the director of Access, uh, Center for American Culture in Arizona State University, Dr. William Brashe. Uh, and uh, Professor Ho from Johnson Smith University. And she will deliver speech in the evening uh, at uh, half past seven, I think, uh, downstairs in room 107. And their students, uh, Peggy, uh, Peggy, would you say, say hello to Peggy? Peggy. Peggy. Okay, Peggy. Uh, and firstly, I would like to uh, invite uh, Dr. William Brasher to have a few words about uh, access. Okay. Okay. Thank you very much. And uh, thank you for, to Professor Yang uh, for inviting us uh, to Chuan We are very happy. And uh, we're very honored to be on your campus with you. So it's a great opportunity for us. It's the first time for my colleagues to be on this campus. But it's not my first time. So I love Chuanda. And uh, I actually have a lot of Chuanda students in my classes at Arizona State University. So uh, it's, it's a great pleasure to be here. So thank you. So we're uh, having a tour. And our objective is to talk about American culture, right? So American culture is difficult to understand, right? Difficult. But Chinese culture is also once once you go to Guangzhou, you go to Chengdu, it's all different, right? Many regions are different, and so on this tour, this is a multicultural tour. So multicultural is what. Different cultures, right? So, United States is not one culture. So, this tour we're talking about the Black American experience in the United States. My colleagues, as you can see, this shirt says the historically Black college. That's what this university is forms a network of historically black colleges. What is a historically black college? 
Any ideas? Any ideas?
at life beyond slavery. You know, a little later on, there was a period called redemption. That period gets left out a lot in history. People don't talk about the redemption period of the United States. Um, but I'm impressed with your prior knowledge of what an HBCU is and how it was founded. Okay. I would like to invite Reggie to stand up for a minute. Reggie is a student at Johnson C. Smith University. So could you explain why you, where are you from, and why are you going to a historically black college? Well, I am from Los Angeles, California, Hollywood. Um, I did not go to high school with a lot of people like myself, other whole. So I wanted to be around a lot of educated black people like myself because I have not been around that a lot. Okay. So Reggie came all the way from Los Angeles to the other side of the country, to North Carolina, to go to a historically black college. So very interesting, right? He was also accepted into Harvard, but he chose Johnson C. Smith. So just want to give you some background on the university system that is historically black. University. It has, it has something to do with what our talk is going to be. And do you have any questions about this so far? Yeah. Yeah. Who is Johnson C. Smith? Where? Who is Johnson C. Smith? Oh, who is Johnson C. Smith? Johnson C. Smith um, is his wife. Um, so his wife donated a, a lot of money for the benefit of the school. As a result, the school was named for her husband. Now, this is, this is interesting. A former student of mine, for up until, I want to say, 19, excuse me, 2007, up until the year 2007, individuals did not know what the C stood for in Johnson C. Smith because individuals who did know died and they didn't record well what the C stood for. So for generations, individuals will ask, so what does the C stand for in Johnson C. Smith? And no one knew the exact answer. So there was a young man who I taught, and one of his hobbies was research, like genealogical research. And he discovered that the C in Johnson C. Smith stood for Crane, C-R-A-Y-N-E. So the, the, the reason for me sharing that aspect of the story is that, think about this, that was lost information from 1867 until 2007. And a student, not a faculty member, not a paid researcher, a student at Johnson C. Smith University was the only person who was able to solve the mystery of what the C stood for. So yeah, Johnson C. Smith, his wife, um, after he, he had passed, was uh, gave a gift, a, fi a large financial gift. And because of that, the name, which before was Biddle Institute, 
Initially, the school was called Bill Institute for the same reason. But you may notice that maybe here in China, when someone um, donates a large amount of money, a building or a corporation or, uh, for example, the uh, CBA. The CBA, the Chinese Basketball Association, has had different names because different sponsors have paid to have their name reflect itself. Um, the C stands for Crane and Johnson C. Smith, his wife, was a benefactor. And this, this is why the university carries his name. Okay. Any other questions about this? So this multicultural lecture series, as we, as we constructed it, is really about understanding race. And so we, we don't want to deal with race, really. So when, my, we're, when I'm together with my friends, we really don't think about race. I don't think that, oh, his race, what is his race? I don't think that. I'm you. <laughs> <laughs> but we don't, when you become friends with people, you don't see race. You don't really think about that. But unfortunately, in society, and in we still have many issues and challenges with race. Race is, I look at Jermaine, I look at Dr. King, and, well, he may, because of the visual, because of what he looks like, he may have problems in the United States. Is this right? This is affirmative. For yes, you're about to ask. Yeah. I, I, think, I think there are many, uh, many prominent uh, phenomena, like in movies and TV series, that can be easily detected that some black people are discriminated. Some black people are discriminated against. Yes. Okay. So here we have a group of highly educated black people that you would not think they would be discriminated against. But in every case, I think each one would say, Do you, is that part of your life? Absolutely. Daily life. Daily, Daily life. Could we, could we have some kind of an idea, a general idea of how that affects you in the United States? By all means. During, in my neighborhood, a neighborhood I've lived for 12 years, I've lived in the same house for the last 12 years. There are times, and I traditionally do, I work out daily. Um, there are times where the weather is nice, the way it is outside now, and I will elect to work out in my neighborhood, like either walk hastily or maybe even run when the park's not up here. And I have a girlfriend who does not like when I do that. As a matter of fact, I may text her and say, hey, if I miss a correspondence between you and I because I'm working out, and then she'll ask, are you going to the gym? Because she knows what the other answer is. No, I'm going to do outside cardio. And then she'll text back, hey, before you leave, don't. Could you please go to the gym? And this is why. She's worried that, let's see, and it's a daylight savings time is happening in, in Virginia, excuse me, in, in uh, America, but it gets dark late during a good portion of the year. 
and she's worried that because of my look, some may find me to be menacing, even though, like a panda, I'm quite friendly, right? <laughs> we've had some, we've had discussion about pandas on um, Halloween. Um, however, to some, I look like a threat, and when you have a threat, people tend to want to eliminate the threat. Um, now, I will admit, and I'm not going to lie, I have not had an incident within my own neighborhood. However, I am conscious of things that I should, I won't do when I work out in my neighborhood if it's too late. First of all, the compression gear that I wear when I work out is all black, okay? So when you add darkness with someone who is gargantuan, facial hair, and black, I may look as if I'm attempting to cause someone harm, i.e. break into a home, or I just look like a bad guy. You know, the villain usually is associated with what color? Black. So. Um, even I know that if it's too dark, I'm not going out because who knows what could happen. One of the things that could happen could end in my demise. So she's worried that that will happen and would rather me go to a closed environment to prevent me meeting any harm. Yeah. So if we see Jermaine running down the street, you might, white people, may think, danger. This is dangerous. So, there's, a move, there's certain movements that have been developed to counter this idea. Uh, some of them, uh, one recent movement is called Black Lives Matter. You may have heard that, Black Lives Matter. So, big movement in the U.S. now. Do you want to say a few words about, about that kind of? Well, I, I think that, that what you don't understand if you don't experience it is that it's something that you literally think about, like you said, like uh, Dr. Williams said, every day. I have two sons. They are 15 and 17. And I have to be careful about where they go and who they're with to ensure that no harm comes to them. And if I were a white mom with white boys, I might have some concern, but it wouldn't be the same. Because I not only have to worry about other youth, other teenagers, I have to worry about police. And whether the police, who are supposed to protect and serve, would protect and serve my children the way they would protect and serve someone else's. Oftentimes, my children would be looked at as the perpetrator or the person doing something wrong, even if they had nothing to do with whatever has gone on. So it's very, um, it's stressful. But it's stress that you don't really realize after a while just as part of our lives. Uh, and I think what's most compelling is that when you explain that to other people and they think about it, you, they realize, wow, yeah, that must be really stressful. So I think conversations like this are important so that there's an, a better understanding between people. That's why we have these kinds of dialogues in the U.S. so that people can understand each other. And so that's one of the reasons we're having this tour.
So, without uh, further ado, I'll introduce uh, Professor King, who is uh, a popular professor at Johnson C. Smith, and uh, he's the first professor to have a course in sneaker culture. <laughs> and uh, he's quite interested in sneakers, and today we were at uh, Taiwan, and he's very interested in the different stores of sneakers and how it relates to his research. So, without further ado, please. Thank you. I bring you greetings, I bring you all greetings from um, Charlotte, North Carolina, and Johnson C. Smith University. Before, before I begin, I want to talk about the excursion had today, um, Tahiti, where since we've arrived, you know, I've had, we, we've passed our, by the way, before I begin, if you have questions at any time, please raise your hand and I will stop to, we'll, we'll recognize your question, and please feel free to, this is interactive, my course, my courses at JCSU are not me lecturing for an hour, even though I may do so. Um, but there's interaction between me and my students. Today, you are my students. So if there's something you would like to share or question, or if I prompt to ask someone, please feel free. So, to Gili, what we're there today, I, I look specifically for Chinese footwear brands. Brands that I actually adore. Some of them I actually have. Raise your hand if you're familiar with a company, Li Ning. Okay. I am a huge fan of Li Ning. I let's see one, two, four pair. I own four pair. Um, raise your hand if you're familiar with the brand Anta. Okay. Okay. Um, Three hundred and sixty-one degrees uh, sportswear. <laughs> Is there something different so putting up three sixty-one? But. Um, let me explain to you how, why these brands, uh, why I was in the search for these brands. We passed the store and I'm like, it looks like a footlocker, but it's Anta. It looks like a footlocker, but it's leading. So, what companies have done, those companies, leading specifically, has been shrewd about getting their product, which is sold primarily here in China, in the American market. If you've ever watched a uh, professional basketball game, or maybe even read a publication that has that is about basketball, you will see many pictures of athletes. You cannot, it's rare to see a picture of an athlete without seeing what's on their what? Their feet. So when Li Ning wanted to break into the American market, they thought, hmm, how do we get a brand that is not known at all in America in America. And they thought, hmm, the big athletes, people like, let's see, so we're talking, let's go back to 2006. So someone like LeBron James wouldn't wear that brand at that time because he'd already signed a contract. So the big players, the better the player is, the quicker they're signed to contracts, to endorsements. So they thought, man, we, how do we get a product with a big name and convince the big name that they should do it? We got an idea. We can't. So this is what we'll do. We'll get a guy who was in the NBA, who plays 
with a guy who's pretty important. And when they take a picture of the guy who's pretty important, who will they also be taking a picture of? Our guy. I want to give you an example of what I'm talking about. There's a man you may know. His name is Damon Jones. Damon Jones played, ironically, he played with LeBron James in Cleveland and in Miami. His Damon Jones' game, he was good enough to be in the NBA, but he didn't play a lot. One thing about Damon Jones is that he dressed in an immaculate fashion. He was the best dressed person on his team <laughs> every time. So when players were getting off the plane, he'd have his suit and he had his bag and he'd walk his English down and everyone was like, man, look what he's wearing. He's dressed well. Well, Lee Mean approached him and said, hey, Damon, how much money are you getting to wear shoes? He's like, I have to buy my shoes. <laughs> Not anymore. Because we're going to pay you an X amount of money if you'd be willing to wear this Chinese brand. Being the capitalist that he was, he's like, sure, I'll do that. And every time, you know, back then too, every time they took a picture of Shaquille's feet or LeBron's feet or Dwayne Wade's feet, he was standing right next to them in the free throw line. <laughs> and they got his shoes as well. This is how Lee Mean broke into the American market. Now the strategy again, we don't need the big guy. We need a guy who plays on a team with the big guy because when they get their picture taken, we'll get our picture taken too. And they've grown. So their biggest name after that was a German named Baron Davis. Okay? The cars that I passed out has a logo. I call that logo the Crown Man logo. That logo was inspired by a Lee Mean logo called the Boom Man logo, which was the official logo of Baron Davis. So in 2010, I had the opportunity to purchase two pairs of B. Davis Booms. They were called Booms. And they were the most comfortable shoes I'd ever worn. And I thought, oh my God. Not only is this shoe unique, but it's comfortable. I must get more. And before I could buy more, it became a little bit more difficult at that time to buy them in the American market. But company, Chinese companies, clearly, this is a huge market. Okay, This is all you need Okay, if you were a company selling shoes here. But typically, companies are not satisfied with all they need. They want the world. So um, it is interesting to see there's, there's a basketball court right next to this building. And they had a basketball being played, and as I got out of the car, I looked to see, oh my gosh, look at all these different brands that you can't get in the United States, or you can't get them easily. So I'll start there. One of the themes of this lecture will be uniqueness. In a city, in a country, that you all have a style that is so unique that Westerners are literally attempting to replicate your take on style, which has a Western influence already. So this is unique. Whether you realize it or not, you all are influencing the world regarding fashion, and especially regarding student culture. We will get to that. Uniqueness. Uniqueness is a part of the culture. The 1960s, the 1960s in the United States, there weren't a lot of choices of shoes. And by the way, shoes during that time were made of a particular material. Does anyone know? Sneakers. We're talking about tennis shoes or sneakers. Does anyone know? Canvas. Okay. Canvas. 
What are some canvas sneakers that you may that you may wear now? Converse. What what particular type of Converse? All Star. All Star. Which is named for which particular gentleman? Mm -hmm. Good job, boy. Chuck Taylor. Wow. Good job. Chuck Taylor. Chuck, okay. So let's talk about him for a moment, and I'll mention a few other canvas brands of that time period. Yeah, a lot. Because all brands were can all sneakers were canvas at the time. Well, let me ask you, does anyone know what Chuck Taylor did for a living? But he has his own basketball shoe that was named for him. Chuck Taylor was a salesman. He drove around selling products like insurance and things of that nature. You ever, you ever read Glenn Ross and Garrett? Similar to that, but they were selling like what real estate in that particular play. So Chuck Taylor also played AAU basketball. Are you familiar with what AAU basketball is? In America, AAU, it's a level of basketball that, let's see, players who are in high school, the elite players in high school play on AAU teams. They're like club, amateur club teams. And only the best players get the opportunity to play or the ones who have influence. Families may have influence. Hey, my child wants to play. I need him on this team. Well, AAU is a early precursor to players going to college and participating in basketball. And those of the end up playing where? In the NBA or the CBA or other professional leagues around the world. Because the CBA is a viable option for professional basketball. But Chuck Taylor played AAU, so he never played on a professional team. However, people just think, well, he has his own shoe. He must have been pretty good, and he must have played professional basketball. Chuck Taylor, the, the Converse Chuck Taylor was one, one uh, canvas shoe. You may have heard of a brand called BF Goodrich. BF Goodrich is an entire company in America. However, the rubber that they use to make tires is also the rubber that they use to make what? The sole of their canvas shoe. There's a company called Procad, which is popular worldwide. Um, Procad had a shoe called the Procad Super. Well, if you were to look up the Procad Super, you would see a shoe that looks a lot like the Converse Chuck Taylor. Many times, companies would just take a model of the shoe and brand it their own. We'll talk more about that in this particular lecture. So during the 60s, <laughs> shoes were secret campus, and they were all, they didn't have a lot of options in color. So why would you select a shoe that was a different color? Like, why would you that everyone's wearing shoes, but they're not the same. So why why different why the different colors? Was that too? Okay. So to match your dress with your outfit, your clothes. Any other reason? Your style to suit your specific dressing style. Not bad. Anything else? Because that, that ties into something else I wanted to touch on. Don't want to be the same as others. Awesome. Because each of you have unique personalities. 
there's something that you may enjoy to read or watch, and there's something that you may not. So we're all individuals. So this is the problem. The shoes, uh, the canvas shoes, specifically for Chuck Taylor, were in two colors, black and what other? What's the other color? White. White. Okay. And it came in two forms, a high top and an Oxford. An Oxford would be a low top. So individuals who wanted to express their unique personalities had few options. So my next question for you is, if all our shoes are either black or white, all our sneakers are either black or white, how do we express our personalities with our shoes? Ah, draw them. What is that? I'm going to talk about that later as well. Perhaps you were drawing them. But this was during a time where individuals weren't that creative. They thought that drawing on their shoes would ruin them. But you're on the right track because that is close to what what else could you do, especially in the sport of basketball, which we'll talk about in a second as well. So if everyone's wearing the same shoes and we're wearing, let's say, shorts, how do I distinguish myself from you on a basketball court? You, you make tie your shoes in a different way. Yes, may tie them in a different way, but not too different because I don't want to get hurt. Because remember, I'm playing in what type of shoes? <laughs> playing in canvas shoes and I need support. Someone else said, what was it? Socks. Socks. Bingo. Thank you. If we're waiting to say, are you familiar, hold on, pause. Are you familiar with a show, an American show called The Fresh Prince of Bel-Air? No worries. Please, if you get a chance to look at this show because this is some back of the corner we use. Will Smith, the actor Will Smith, played himself on the show. And he went to a boarding school where they all had to wear a uniform. The inside of his blazer was a particular color. So he would take his blazer and wear it inside out to distinguish himself from the other students. So this is what people would, who wanted to distinguish themselves, they would wear socks that were unique. They would wear socks that were bold in color. As a matter of fact, people begin to associate the color of the socks with the game, the, how well they played basketball. So it became a situation where, this is a gentleman named Pee Wee Kirkland. Pee Wee Kirkland, is a, uh, he attended Norfolk State University and ended up playing in the uh, NBA with the Chicago Bulls. But Pee Wee Kirkland said that if you had on bowl socks, you couldn't play, you couldn't step into a basketball court unless you played well. Meaning your socks signified, if you had on crazy colored socks, that meant that you really could play basketball. So after that time period, companies got smart. So we're going to move forward to 1970 through 1974. During that period, there was an emergence of leather suede and Basketball culture began to become what we call popular culture. Now, the suede in 1970 is a little different from the suede we have now. The suede in 1970 was so pure that if you rubbed it, it may have moved, right? Because it was that close to being a cow. But um, during that time, there was a company named Adidas. Are you familiar with Adidas? Adidas. Crafted and marketed the first $100 shoe. Now, let's think in the long of 2017 money. We're talking about a shoe that was $100, a sneaker, excuse me, a sneaker that was $100 in 1972. Okay? That was unheard of. Most people were, were unwilling to pay $100 for a sneaker. And to be quite honest, the demographic that they wanted at that time probably 
couldn't afford a $100 sneaker, but this is how they sold it. It was the first sneaker that featured 100% leather. And also, it featured, we're going to use the term technology. Technology as we proceed. The toe box. It had a perforated toe box. Does anyone know what that is? Let's see, I'm not wearing that. I don't have a, yesterday I had on a pair of shoes that had a perforated toe box. A perforated toe box looks like this.
If we go back to the top 10, there were 10 players, and they all wore the same brand and the same shoe. People went out and blocked to buy this shoe. Because if you didn't like uh, one player, there was probably one of that 10 who you did like. During this time, also, the culture I mentioned, pop culture. Basketball culture became pop culture. So things that someone may wear while they were shooting basketball, they began to wear it when they were not shooting basketball. As if, if they were college students and they were going to class, they would wear long socks, they would wear sneakers, they may even wear basketball shorts and or a jersey, like a, whatever they would shoot ball in. That became a part of their regular wear. So we have a time period where basketball is now influencing popular culture. Now, during the late 70s, we have the emergence of choice and the connoisseur. You'll find with any product, if a product is doing well, what would another company attempt to do? To copy, to replicate. If you're going to buy this, buy ours too, because there's so much money to be made in these streets. Okay? The companies began to, everybody had to shoot. There were so many brands, because now, Sneakers were made for, um, for utility, to be used for a specific purpose, for athletic leisure, for athletic competition leisure. But now people are wearing them as outfits. So companies wanted to enter this market. And there were so many brands, people began to subscribe to brands. I'll pause for a moment. Are there, and not just sneakers, any brand, are there brands that you are loyal to? And if so, what are they? Of any product? Nike, okay. Loyal to Nike. What other brands? New Balance, okay. New Balance is huge here. What else? Okay, Red Bull? Okay. Red Bull gives you wings, right? Um, Apple. Apple. Apple is cold. Okay, the Bronx is a uh, borough in New York. 
They were started by minorities, specifically Puerto Ricans and blacks. Okay? Hip hop culture is the song of the proletariat. In other words, individuals who did not have a voice, their communities would not hear them, their government would not hear them. They would turn to hip hop to voice how they were feeling to music. And this has happened throughout time, but it just so happened that this genre of music was attached to this group of people, the impoverished individuals who, were, who thought that they were not heard, okay? Sneaker culture and hip-hop culture, no matter how you want to look at it, are one. They're intertwined. I'll give you an example of what I'm talking about. While we stayed in our state in Guangzhou, there was a Nike commercial that I watched over and over again over a few days. It was a commercial that featured a song by the Wu-Tang Clan. Specifically, excuse me, a song by a member of the Wu-Tang Clan, the ODB, the Old Dirty Bastard. The song titled, the title is Shimmy Shimmy Ya, okay? Shimmy Shimmy Ya would play in the background of this commercial, so I was actually laying down, not looking at the TV, but the TV was on. And I heard the song. I'm like, wait a minute, this is Wu. And then I looked and I saw a basketball court. And there was a young Chinese man who challenged another young Chinese man to a game of basketball, and the fans were rooting them on as they played. But that was the theme of the commercial. That got to be a context. Uh, when modern company, during that time, when companies would, would uh, market hip hop, market sneakers, they would use hip hop to do it because the people who wore sneakers were listening to what? to hip-hop, and the people who wore sneakers and listened to hip-hop, most of society found them to be cool, mainly because some saw them as being rebellious, and people who are deemed to be rebellious, or thought of as being rebellious, they inspire others. It's called fanatic behavior. Here's the point. Companies start to realize, like, hey, wait a minute. We don't like this music, but people who, who do like it will spend money. And a lot of the people who like it, who will spend money, want to spend money to not look like they're poor, okay? So companies who didn't like hip-hop began to use hip-hop to sell products, and this definitely happened with sneaker culture. So, um, so we have so many sneaker brands, and we have a demographic, one demographic, one major demographic who's buying the shoes. We haven't figured out a way to sell more shoes, and this is how it happened. During this time period, we have the emergence of the technical basketball sneaker. What do you think I mean by technical? It enhances the athlete's performance. Yes, perfect. It enhances an athlete's performance. Okay? But a shoe is, we're talking like a sole, um, an upper, and laces. How much technology could you put into that? Ah, I haven't. Let me share a story with you from the year of 1989. Does the, let's see, the culture here. When it's time to go back to school after a break, between breaks, do you, is there a specific time when you mean buy school clothes, like new school clothes for school? Well, in America, there's a summer break. Okay, and school opens either depending on where you live, either in August or September. 
So, where I'm from in Virginia, we start school in September, and I was getting new clothes for the next school year. And I walked into a store called Shoe Show with my mother. And I asked my mother for a pair, a particular pair of shoes because they looked cool and they featured this technology. Okay? The technology is called Viz Air. An air bubble. There was an air bubble in the, in the heel of the shoe. The shoe was the Nike Air Revolution. By the way, the Jordan 3, the Nike the Air Jordan 3, the original, the low top version of the Nike um, Air Revolution. So I presented the Nike Air Revolution to my mother. Mom, I would like to get this shoe. Okay? My mother took the shoe from my hand and she looked at it. What do you think she noticed first? The bottom? Yes. The bottom and specifically the heel. There was a window in the bottom of the shoe. And she was looking directly through the window. <laughs> and she said to me, before she even looked at the price tag, I'm not paying for that window. <laughs> and I'm, the look I have on my face is the same look I was like, well, I was looking at my mom like, Come on, don't be this way. Like, I think, don't be that cheap, right? Like, it's not that much more. So my mother being, this is the reason my mother is my mother. She's pretty smart. She looks at the shoe and notices that the shoe is three colors. It's white. It's an all-white shoe. It is royal, and it has a hint of black outline. And it's an outline that's black. And it's a high top. So she sees a shoe that's white and blue, and it's a high top. So she's like, hey, this is a high top. Nike, and it's also white and blue, but it doesn't have biz hair. You're getting this for back to school. Okay? I'm thinking, well, it's better than not getting anything. So the other shoe was the Nike Air Delta Horse, which also featured air. However, you couldn't do what? You couldn't see through it. It didn't feature that technology. So I'm going to share this with you. The difference between the Nike Air Revolution and the Nike Air Delta Force is that Nike created two basketball shoes one was marketed to someone who was willing to pay the extra dollars for that window, and the other was for the, for the uh, customers who wouldn't pay for that. Now, it had air in there, but you just couldn't see through it. Um, during this time, companies began to develop. Sometimes it was real technology to enhance an athlete's performance, and other times it was a placebo, which is a fake, yeah, a, a fake technology. I'm going to give you examples of fake technology. You mentioned Converse earlier. In the early 90s, Converse created a technology called React Juice. What do you tend to do with juice? Drink it. Drink it. Okay? So, this is, think of this as the back of the shoe. This is the back of the shoe, and there was a window, a, a packet, a clear window that had React written on it. And inside that was a bright neon yellow fluid. And if you would move to your left, the fluid would also move where? <laughs> to your left. If you would move to your right, the fluid would move where? Yeah. To your right. So this is what Converse said. Our shoe, our basketball shoe, 
the night, excuse me, the Converse Aerojam, worn by Grandmama, Larry Johnson. The, the Converse Aerojam features React Juice. So when you go to cut on the basketball court, the juice will move with your body weight and make your cut quicker. <laughs> and people believe it. And they went out and bought React Juice. So companies like, wait a minute, Nike's making money off this technology. Um, Converse is making money. We have to come up with something. There's a company called LA Gear. You may have heard of LA Gear. LA Gear came up with the catapult. So think of this as the bottom of the shoe again. And there was a spring that was in the heel. So I'm going to make the heel this way. Whenever you would take a step, the spring would do what? Yeah, it would pop up. So he said, when you jump, the spring will do what to you? It will propel you in the sky. You can dunk like Carl, Carl the Mailman Malone, who was a guy who just happened to be able to dunk well. So individuals who wanted to dunk like Carl the Mailman Malone would go out and buy this shoe. Since I'm talking about technology, I'm going to move forward for just one second and mention this. Are you familiar with uh, Kim Kardashian? Yes. Wow. She's global, she's international. Okay. I want to show you how companies are still using placebo technology to sell shoes. Does anyone know what the number two best-selling sneaker company in the world is? Nike and Adidas. Close. Nike is number one. Adidas is about number three. Ah, Air Jordan is a separate brand, but it's not that high. It's high, but not that high. Timberland. Good choice. Still not that high. The number two brand is a brand called Skechers. Oh, yes. Skechers. Skechers. This is the type of this is the type of marketing Skechers is on what they use. So Kim Kardashian is known a lot for her fashion and for her beauty and also for her figure. Okay. <laughs> to put it simply, she has a large posterior. Okay. They created, uh, Skechers created a shoe called the Shape Up, which had a unique curved bottom. And they went out and marketed and said, hey, Kim Kardashian wears our shoes, and look at her behind. <laughs> if you were to buy our shoes, because, you're, because our shoes aren't flat at the bottom, you're working your glutes every time you step. And if you wear them long enough, you would have a posterior like who? Kim Kardashian. People went, women went out and bought these shoes in droves. And then one brave woman said, I've been wearing these shoes for a year, and my boots have not changed. I am going to sue you, Skechers. And Skechers is like, ah, you got us. But we're not, we're going to delay this, this, we're going to delay this as long as we possibly can. Would you like to settle out of court? Yes, I would, because you're, you're holding me up, and I have to pay for court costs. So Skechers settled their lawsuit with others, but not only her, but others who joined. They settled. But think about this for a moment. They made more money than they actually paid out in the what? In the settlement. So it was a calculated loss. So companies, many times companies are not sued on their fake technology because people don't think like, they don't think that far. But during this time period, technical basketball shoes became a thing. Companies tried to create new and sometimes real, like the Reebok Pump and sometimes fake like React Juice by Converse to enhance the sales of their sneakers. Now, we're moving forward to the mid to late 80s. 
There's an author, <clears throat> an author of a text, Bobito Garcia. Bobito Garcia states that sneaker, pure, pure sneaker culture ends in the year 1987. And this is why. Retro and sneaker culture, besides, I know the Chuck Taylor's been selling since the 60s, but most companies, if they made a shoe, if you liked it, you had to buy it again because what would happen to it if you didn't buy it? It would become discontinued, or at least it used to be that way until retro took form. Retro boomed as far as people will pay for old shoes. Retro started to take a real effect in the year 1999, globally. 1999 changed how companies market shoes, marketed shoes. So, Bobito Garcia ends pure sneaker culture with the year 1987 because companies began to re-release older models of shoes. Let me ask you this. I'm going to take off the culture for one moment. How many of you have written a paper for a class? Okay, all of you, right? I was waiting for everything. So you're like, you all have. Okay. Think about this. What if you wrote this strong paper, and you were allowed to reuse this paper for different classes. How many of you would want to write new papers? <laughs> I know that's plagiarism. It is. And I listen. When I'm at home, I don't listen. I'm sorry, but it's important for me. Plagiarism is for me. Companies begin to realize, like, hey, wait a minute. You actually want this shoe from 20 years ago? But this shoe is out. You know what? No problem. Here. Here's the Nike Air Revolution from 1988. Okay? We're going to raise the price $34, where here you are. So Garcia ends pure culture in 1987 because companies realize that, hey, people will pay for old shoes. People will pay for nostalgia, for nostalgia. I was born in the year 1977. There's a car I had a, one of the cars I desired to have was a car made in 1973, and I bought one. It was a 1973 Chevrolet Chevelle. Now, because I was looking, it was in pretty good condition, but I was looking to restore it piece by piece, and then I got tired and just got rid of it. There were individuals who were a little older than I am who actually had a Chevelle, whether it be in 1971, 72, or 73, who actually had their car in their youth, and now they're much older, what might they do in their older age? Well, if they don't have it, they don't have it anymore, so they bought it what? Buy it again, because it reminds them of what? Yeah, the days of their youth, the old days, yes, the old days. Nostalgia. There's a price tag for nostalgia, and typically it's a high price tag. You're not going to get nostalgia cheap, folks. So, sneaker companies realize that and they begin to re-release old shoes that were outdated and to sell them again at a higher price tag. Sometimes they would change things and make them updated, but typically retro now drives the market. If there's at least one student in here who's wearing a sneaker who's not current, if someone's wearing a Stan Smith, a Stan Smith Adidas, that shoe's not even that shoe's not even a Stan Smith. That shoe's been recycled to the point where they changed the name. Okay? Um, but it's the same shoe from the 60s and the 70s. So, tennis, yes, definitely. Um, retro, according to Garcia, 
ended what we now know as pure, pure sneaker culture. Um, we'll talk about two more things. And it should be close to the, what's my time on the line? We're close to it. 10 minutes, okay? Gotcha. So we'll bring up two things and then we'll close it down. And if you have questions, I'll address your questions. Someone mentioned earlier, one of you mentioned drawing on sneakers. The arts and crafts portion of sneaker culture has been there almost since the beginning. Because, again, if you buy a pair of sneakers and I buy the same pair, and I'm thinking, like, we're not the same people, so why should I draw on my, you know, alter the appearance by cutting parts off? Customization right now is huge. There's a young man, a former student of mine, who has a, a uh, customized shoe business on campus, and people pay him a good amount of money to customize their shoes. There's a gentleman named Mach in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, and people pay him four times what they paid for their sneakers to customize their shoes in a unique way. Now, he does a great job, but the customization of sneakers is becoming a big business, and you don't need to go to school to do that. You just need to have artistic ability and to be creative. Um, this is the last portion. A hunting we will go. Many times, if individuals are looking to be unique with sneakers, they go off the beaten path to find them. So I'll ask, are there places here you may go to purchase shoes that you may not tell somewhere else where you got them? I'm not talking about I went to the mall or I went to the store down the street. Is it like a secret locale where you may go and you may not tell your friends because you don't want them to go and buy the shoes that you have? Okay. This became popular. This is a staple of secret culture. Where did you get those? To walk into a room and someone stop you like, excuse me, sir, I have to ask you, where did you get those? <laughs> the Archways Podcast is a production of Johnson C. Smith University in Charlotte, North Carolina, USA, in partnership with the Guangdong Bayun University in Guangzhou's People's Republic of China. Archways is made possible through generous funding from the United States Embassy in Beijing, China, and through the College of Arts and Letters at Johnson C. Smith University. Additional support has been provided by the Andrew W. Mellon Foundation. Subscribe to this podcast through iTunes. You can email us at jcsuartsletters at gmail.com.